to invite our preacher up for today, Mr. David Ingalls in the house. So, uh, I just want to give a quick introduction if you guys don't know this fine gentleman, most of you do. Uh, so, this is uh, David's first time preaching for us at Kaleo. David lives upstairs. He's part of the practice. You guys know David for the most part. And, uh, but, um, he's the man. So, that's all Thanks. I got. <laughs> Weighing in. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony already made a, uh, a Rocky uh, corner coach reference, so it would fit. This isn't mine. Mm. So I'm going to go back if you want to get your hand out of here. And I'm going to reread um, verses 28 and 30 right there at the end. Uh, so take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. What? This is uh, <laughs> very uh, characteristically un-Jesus-like. Um, what happened to the last will be first and the first will be last. I thought that Jesus was here to lift up the downtrodden and the despaired. What is the end of I don't like this. What is the end of this parable saying? That's not how this is supposed to work. This does not sound like good news. This is upsetting. This is not Jesus that I have encountered before. Um, I think as I was engaging with this text and being very much distraught over what I was reading in a book that I thought was familiar, um, God smiled because that's what parables are supposed to do. Um, it made me read it again and again and again because I could not accept what I had just read. And maybe that's because I identified a little closer than I would have liked with the last servants uh, who buried the master's gold. Um, as I read through it and I felt the fear and what that last servant must have felt and how embarrassed he must have been. I went back to last year um, when I was nearly crippled by that same fear. Um, I was approaching graduation, right? From Good old Rebecca. And I, for my whole life, I had, I had known the boxes to check. You go to school, you clean your room. Good job, Davey. Right? Yeah. You garden well, your dad's proud of you. And then you go to high school and you write a paper and you get up in front of the class and you give a presentation and the teacher says, well, you did well here, you didn't do so well here, do this better next time. You check the boxes, you get the grades. I go, to, I go to college knowing that God wants me there. I still can't explain that one. Um, but I check the boxes, I write the papers, I, I engage in classes, and the professors say, good job, you've done so well. Um, but then graduation approaches, and I had thought, of course, I, why would God not give me the next box to check? Um, and it's scary because I, I don't know how to engage with this God thing. Um, how am I supposed to make God happy without knowing the box to check? Um, so I went back to one of the last ones that I knew that I had, that I hadn't checked yet, and it was a calling, some form of missional work. And I did what any college student does when they don't 
know what to do after graduation. And uh, I applied to seminary because that'll be easy, right? Um, but but I did it because it's a God thing, right? Like I won't I won't make a mistake. I won't regret that. Will I? Um, and God smiled, as God is wont to do, and uh, waited. That's a hard one. And God waited until one day in the middle of June last year. And uh, a friend and I were on the way back from the gas station. It's Alyssa Landry, for those of you who know. And uh, in the middle of the normal conversation, she, she decides to drop this bomb on me. She says, David, it doesn't really sound like you want to go to seminary. <laughs> what? <laughs> Silence. I'm terrified. Because I know that she's right, but... But this is, this is the thing. This is going to make God happy. This is going to make my life okay. Ooh. And she just popped that little bubble. And it took me a few days to accept it. That, that was a hard pill to swallow. Even though I knew instantly when she said it, it resonated deep within me. I knew that she was right. And why was it scary? Because I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed, so I was afraid. And naturally, I'm going to make that choice out of fear, if that is my master. Of course. I think that uh, our context sometimes teaches us that our bodies are inherently bad, our desires are dangerous, that the earth itself is evil. Um... And that we always have to be strong and pleasant and decent Christians for God. Because we wouldn't want to incur the wrath of this feared master. So in a world where it's all misery and fear until we get whisked away to something better, it makes perfect sense to live in fear with our hands tightly clenched and our gold safely buried. What else are we supposed to do? And looking back, I am so thankful that I didn't bury that bag of gold. I'm so glad that I did not go to seminary because I would be in a strange city with a community that didn't know me like you guys know me. I would be getting a degree in classes I wasn't passionate about, that I was doing just out of fear. I would be making it, but that's not living. Because I was afraid of making the wrong choice because I was afraid. I was going to do it because I knew that my master was a hard man. That's a, ooh, that's a hard place to live. You see, fear is, for me, as I suspect for each of you guys, pretty deeply rooted. Um, and it's a response that we've learned. It's not something that we have done wrong. It's we've learned these things to survive in life. Fear drives us to bear the master's gold so that he won't be angry. And we all do this differently. Um, some of us take control and hoard power and responsibility to protect ourselves. Some of us become so small and malleable that how could anyone be angry with me now? Um, some of us run faster and faster and faster, chasing the next exciting thing to keep ourselves distracted for a little longer. Some of us go to amazing lengths to force our world to be the right way so that we can exist in it and things will be okay. 
um, some of us withhold trust because how can I be hurt if I don't trust them in the first place? Some of us give and give and give and give with the sneaky hopes that that will buy us their love. Some of us shut others out because if I hide from the world, my own little internal world will be safe. Some of us fight to be the best so that by rising to the top, nobody could look down on us and we would never not fit in. Some of us try to make sure that our lives are meaningful and distinct and poignant so that we won't be dissatisfied with ourselves in the end. Um, one of my personal favorite fears is uh, you have to fix that problem or, or person before you can let them near you because what if you get hurt? Um, our fear is very helpful in these sort of things. It says things like, you don't have the time to go love that person to get to know your neighbor. It says, if only I had the time to do this or maybe, maybe next year when I'm not so busy, I can slow down and make time for myself and my family. Maybe when things calm down a little, I can start living. Fear says to look away when someone's in pain because it reminds us that we too feel it, and that's scary. Fear says, you're too small and that problem is far too big. Um, more classically, as I have criticized in the past, fear can say, we, we've always done it this way, why would we do it anywhere else? Or, we can't sing that kind of music. Um, and it's not just adults, it's kids. It starts, it starts when we're little. When we're dancing and we're happy and we're joyous and somebody says, that's not a, that's, calm down, that's not appropriate, you're too old to dance. When, when we sing for joy and we're happy and then someone looks at us and we don't know if, they're, if they think we're good or not. And so we, we stop, even though it made us happy because what if it wasn't enough for them? We learn to tell lies as kids because we're not sure that if I tell the truth, will I be accepted? Will they still love me if they know what I've done? <laughs> and it's bigger than that. It's us as adults, it's us as kids, and it's us as a community. We, we share communal fears. We can bury our gold together. Um, we did in Egypt. We said, man, I wish I was back in Egypt where where there was food, at least, because that'd be better than starving in the desert. We said it not too long ago as a nation when we said, no, now is not a convenient time for civil rights. We should wait for some other time when it's more appropriate. It was said by an entire nation when they said we, sh we should holocaust the Jews because they're they're just, we're upset. They're destroying our, our culture and our, our nation. Of course we're going to be fearful of them. Hmm. I wonder what our communal fear says to us today. But, but, before, before we rag on fear too much, right? Let's, let's not throw fear under the bus. It is important, after all, right? Fear keeps us buckling our kids into car seats and wearing sunscreen so we don't get cancer. Right? And turning in papers because I don't want to get a bad grade. And feeding ourselves because starvation is bad. Um, fear, fear serves us well. It keeps us alive. We, we need fear. But fear has a nasty habit 
Um, I heard a metaphor of fear liking to road trip. Follow me on this one. If you're going to listen for like two minutes of this, this is like, then this is awesome. Fear's in the passenger seat and you're going somewhere, right? Fear's got its big old travel mug, you know, like your parents used to have, they're great. Full of coffee, Starbucks blonde roast, so much caffeine. Um, and it's got a playlist queued up. It is ready to go. But Fear's playlist is mostly like a mix of metal and then Sufjan Stevens. So it's, oh man, it's just set up to, whew, you're going. And everything's okay, right? You're, you're driving along. But then all of a sudden, Fear reaches over and cranks the radio up. And you're, what is, what are you doing? It's too loud. And then Fear reaches over and grabs the steering wheel. And you're no longer on a road trip. You are in the car and Fear is driving, right? I felt that way. And it, this isn't and no longer about the road trip. This is fear just taking your life over. And it's at these moments that we have to learn to say, okay, I am, first of all, not my fear. And I need my fear. I can't get out of the car. But, man, you, you have to ride in the back seat because you're ruining this. And so with that perspective of we need it, but, oh man, can it hurt us and hurt others. I am thankful that Alyssa interrupted my fear. Um, and I'm sad that nobody gave that last servant permission to do the same, um, to step out of that cycle, to put fear in the backseat where it's supposed to ride. Um, I'm glad that somebody interrupted the long train of voices in my head that said, Fear yourself, fear the world, fear others. Because there isn't enough, and they won't like you, and you can't do it, and nobody will take care of you, and it will never be right, and none of it matters. If the universe is a harsh place, then we will clench our fists, and we will bury our gold, and we will do what we can to protect ourselves from a hard world, and a hard people, and a hard master. And after a while, burying our gold is all we know how to do. And so, we're obviously going to have to look at this parable again. Because that does not sound like Jesus. That is not good news. So skipping back to the beginning, it opens up with, with the master giving the servants ridiculous amounts of money. If most commentators agree that one bag of gold is the rough equivalent to 15 to 20 years of a day laborer's wages. So <laughs> we say, oh man, poor last guy. He only got like $500,000 from his master. <laughs> man, it's a rough life. So you see the picture that the master is strangely generous to servants. Um, and then the master goes away on a journey. The majority of the story is this master is on a journey and he's trusted the servants. So this blows my mind. He's this, his hard-earned wealth, he's supposed to protect this. But now he's off away trusting his servants. Man. But see, I think the master knew that these servants had been with him. They had worked with him. They knew how he structured his life, how he ran his business, how he had built his kingdom. And so he knew. He said, ah, oh, they paid attention. They know how I work. They know the things I desire. And... When he returns, oh man, is he happy. Oh, he's so happy. 
the sir, you know, no instructions. The first two servants return, and well done, good and faithful servant. Wow, I'm proud of you. You've been faithful with a few things, these scraps. I will put you in charge of so many things. Not, oh, wow, good job, man. Thanks for managing the money. I'll take that back now and go back to doing your thing. No, well done. I will put you in charge of many things. He is so overjoyed. He says, come and share in your master's happiness. Oh, that's good. And the last servant buried the gold. He did not use it like the first two because he was afraid. He, he brought it back. It was perfectly safe. There was nothing wrong with it. But he withheld the goodness that had been given to him, and so it was taken away. And this is the turning point in the text. This is the question that it asks us. It says, what are we going to do with the bags of gold? How are we going to put them to good use? And normally this question would bring me an insane amount of anxiety, um, because that's a lot. What am I, I've been given this life. The master said, here you go. Have fun. And this will be terrifying, but, but then I remember, and I have friends that help me remember, and we together remember, oh, that's right, this master is good and generous. And I wonder what in our lives that we have engaged in, that ha- where we have heard the master say, well done, good and faithful servant. And when I was a kid, oh man, I heard that all the time when I ran and laughed and played tag in the grass or rode my bike way too fast down the big hill in our neighborhood and wiped out so much blood. But, man, well done, good and faithful servant. You have lived your life. I participated it when, as a really little kid, I cried to the people that loved me to say, I need, I need something, and I trust that you'll give it to me. I participated when I went swimming with my dad in the ocean. That was terrifying. There was salt in my eyes. Or when my dad and I gardened together. Or when my mom and I would go to get really yummy Thai food when we'd go shopping on Saturdays. Or when she would help me cook with her just to keep me out of trouble because I cause a lot of trouble. <laughs> and I participate now when, when it's a warm summer evening and I can take a walk and listen to the tree frogs. Oh, it's good. I participate when I Sabbath for my body and my soul and my mind and take time to be rather than to be anything in particular. I participate when I I sit and actually listen to the people that I love instead of trying to fill space. That's a hard lesson. I see you guys as a church participate and invite me to participate when we share food together. That's crazy, churches don't do that. I see us participate when we gather in weird little circles in the middle of our Sunday morning church service to actually talk to each other and share our hearts about things and engage. That is also very strange if you hadn't noticed. But in it, I feel the master's happiness. We participate when we send money to World Vision or to Charity Water to help those who have not been so blessed in that way. We participate when we share in the cup and the loaf together. We take time when we give each other our time and resources, and when we take the time to be curious about each other rather than thinking, I know them already. 
So I'm sure that you too have your own things that you love, that bring you joy, that nurture you, and in which you feel the master's happiness. I have been the last servant, let me tell you. I have buried bag upon bag of gold. But that one time, I let someone interrupt it. I listened when someone said, this doesn't sound like the master to me. I'm slowly growing to see God as not the hard master. And that God asks nothing of us in the way of an outcome. He hands the bags of gold and says, have fun. And when he comes, the master comes back. He says, well done. The only disappointment is when no action is taken, is when the servant refused to participate. So, take the bag of gold from him who was too afraid to risk losing it with the master, and give it to the one who did not hold on too tightly. For whoever has joyously joined in the master's work will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever of us does not have, even what we have buried in our fear-wracked nervousness, will be taken from us. All God asks is that we participate in the grand song of creative and abundant love that was sung in the beginning. And in the words of Norman Biersbach, God is the primordial host who prepares the beautiful, fragrant, and delectable feast at which all creatures are fed and find their true home. So, the next time that fear reaches over for the steering wheel and tries to turn the volume up on your life, the next time that you're tempted to bury the master's gold, remember and ask us to help you remember the beautiful and loving and generous and always curious nature of the master.